Like every other red-blooded American, I woke up yesterday and watched the coronation of King Charles III. Having no skin in the game on the monarchy versus republic question, I was watching for the, hi- for the history of the moment. The fancy costumes and the gorgeous transcendent music. There were some 127 microphones picking up every vibration and echo of the choirs throughout the cathedral. For some music nerds like our family, that was the highlight. I was also watching with a little professional curiosity. I doubt I will ever be asked to participate in a royal church service, but the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland last year was an American female, and she got to help with the Queen's funeral. So if they ever decide to ask someone who doesn't live in Scotland to serve, I figure I'm a shoe-in. I watched with curiosity the service, which is different from ours, but in so many ways the same. The language of some of the prayers, though not all, sounded familiar. Here they are crowning a king with the same prayer I use every Sunday morning. It's so familiar, we all, I think, know it. The Lord be with you. And so it was a familiar beginning, but it was also distinctly new. They were intentional about including singers and languages from every part of the Commonwealth. I lost track of the number of times they said things like, this is the first time the Welsh language has been used, this is the first time a woman has served in this role. They were careful to include representatives of all the faiths of people living in the Commonwealth, though it was unashamedly and unabashedly a Christian service, and Charles promised to be defender of the Protestant religion. And I heard the word service approximately 1,000 times. The first words out of Charles's mouth were, I come not to be served, but to serve. The prayers will be written for this service to include references to the service of the monarchy to the people. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the head of the Church of England, delivered a beautiful homily on service and the call of all people, not just Charles, but especially Charles, to serve. At one point, my husband leaned over and said, you know, you could just use his sermon for tomorrow. I don't know what you could replace all the king language with, but... And so followed several silly minutes of finding acceptable alternative for kings. But all this talk about service and inclusion and representation got me to thinking about how important beginnings are. Some famous person said, begin as you mean to go on. Our beginnings define relationships going forward, and there is almost nothing you can do to overcome the opinions and patterns set up at the beginning of a relationship. When we find ourselves in Romans 1 this morning, it's at the beginning of a relationship. Romans is Paul's online dating profile. Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. He doesn't know the people in the small 50-member church swallowed up in the million-person metropolis of the capital. He had never been to Rome. Priscilla, Paul's helpful friend and sponsor, told him of the fledgling community at the heart of the empire and volunteered to take an introductory letter for Paul to the people he had never met across the sea from where he grew up. When Paul dictated this letter to his secretary, it was a method of introducing himself before he made the trip. And so he handed the scroll to Priscilla who was the leader of the church in Rome. Once there, Priscilla would have read the letter out to the gathered community in its entirety. 
Paul is showing us what it looks like to set up a relationship with intention. He was a country boy from a backwater town on the outskirts of the empire. And these were people in the middle of the biggest city in the world. They had on the surface nothing in common except a shared faith. And this was Paul's chance to set himself up for success with this new church plant. Paul's intent is to set up expectations for their relationship together. You can imagine the Roman community nervously waiting for Paul's presence in their midst to help provide leadership and maybe tell them what and how to do things. Expectations would have been sky high, an almost impossible bar for Paul to reach. So this first chapter of Romans is about setting up realistic expectations and defining Paul's hope for their future relationships. What can they expect from him? Who will Paul be? And what are the foundations of Paul's faith? Paul sets up reasonable boundaries for those questions. He comes up with an attitude of mutual service. He's not intending to lead them to tell them what to do. He comes with the knowledge of an experience of who Jesus is and how Jesus changed his life. But Paul is also ready to hear their stories of the risen Jesus. He also clearly well, complicatedly, but clear for Paul, explains his theology of Jesus. The fancy church word for this is Christology, which is our understanding of who Jesus is. The boundaries of his faith, the truth he knows, and what he will teach them when he arrives at their worship. It's best for Paul to know if their theology, their approaches, and expectations are the same before he makes the dangerous and arduous trip. We don't always have the opportunity to set up our relationships with the, with the same exact intentions, laying down boundaries and intentions and expectations. But boundaries and intentions and expectations are the bedrock of a healthy, functioning, sustainable relationship. Sometimes those expectations are defined by our roles. We expect our teacher to set boundaries and to teach us things. We expect mom and dad to set up rules, but also to love and accept us and nurture us and shelter us until we are ready to leave the nest. But even in those defined roles, our needs and expectations for one another shift over time. Much of the parent-child conflict we experience as they grow is due to changing boundaries and expectations, which nobody is really able to name or identify. We so rarely talk about our expectations for one another. A wise man once told me that assumptions about other people are just pre-planned resentment. Almost all of our conflict, almost all of our broken relationships, almost all of our disappointments with other people are the result of unclear and unspoken expectations of one another. My friend Shane tells a story about how he and his wife would begin each Saturday with the hope of a good day spent together as a family. Inevitably, Shane and his wife would end up fighting. In the beginning, the fighting would begin towards the evening when everyone had gotten tired and disappointed in the events of the day. Over the time, the fighting would begin earlier and would become more nasty. Eventually, the fighting began in the bed before they even began the day. Shane and I were talking over coffee one afternoon as he told me this frustration and growing resentment. And so I asked him what I thought was a simple question. What exactly is it you're fighting about? Like, 
is it the same thing every time? Are you not putting the dishes in the dishwasher or something? No, he said, throwing his hand in the air. That's the problem. We are just fighting about everything, from what to do and eat for breakfast to what to do for the day. Well, how did it start, I asked. It started just being at the end of the day, and it's like, now we are anticipating being upset. And so by the end of the day, we're anticipating being upset by the end of the day, and so we just start at the beginning to get that upsetness out of the way. Have you talked about why you were getting upset at the end of the day? She says we never do anything, and she's stuck in the house all weekend. And I said she never said she wanted to do anything, so I just assumed she wanted to stay home and relax on the weekend. But she said she works from home, and I should have known she wanted to go out and do something on the weekend. Did you catch all the problematic assumptions in play in this conversation? Shane assumed his wife wanted the day off. His wife assumed Shane would know how trapped she felt at home. She expected him to anticipate her needs and come up with something fun to do on the weekend. And Shane got upset because he assumed he was doing what she wanted, and she was upset because she assumed Shane didn't care about what she wanted. All this arguing because of unspoken assumptions. Both had unspoken expectations they never named, and both were upset because the other person wasn't living into who they thought the person should be. Assumptions are planned resentments. So Shane and his wife begin each Saturday the same way, even now that there are children in play. Before they begin the day, Shane says, What are your expectations for today? I'm not going to say that this eliminates all arguing and fighting and disagreement, but it has kept those conflicts from coming up all the time or becoming the, from a root of resentments for unmet, unspoken expectations. We so often believe we know what is best for someone else without giving them the respect of asking them what they want. We so often are afraid of asking about other people's expectations because we are worried we can't live up to them or we are worried their expectations are different than our own hopes for this relationship. We so often wait too long to name our expectations for one another past the point where those resentments can be addressed and forgiveness offered, or behavior changed. Our needs and wants from a relationship change, and we never mention those new expectations to the other person, and then we get frustrated when they don't live up to our changed expectation. Paul here shows the value of explicitly naming what we want from each other, how we would like our relationship to be formed, the values we bring with us into this relationship. Paul names the expectations, so no one assumes something different than what and who Paul actually wound up to be when he arrived. Paul names an expectation of mutuality in their relationship. He views himself as an equal amongst them who seeks God just as they do. He names the desire to work together in mutual respect as partners together in the work of God. This is completely different intention than what the people of Rome were expecting. The resentment would have built up over time, and so when Paul came and didn't meet those expectations, it would be impossible to overcome. Because Paul believes he is a servant of God, just as the people of Rome are servants of God, he wants to have an open and honest relationship. 
He sees himself as one of the many people God called to discover Jesus and to spread the gospel. He tells the Romans up front who and what he will be. This boundary setting and expectation naming is an act of love and respect for the people of Rome. His relationship with his community would flourish. They would sustain him during his arrest and captivity. They'd bring him food and supplies and smuggle letters back to his other communities. These people Paul had never met before would become the most important community in the burgeoning Christian faith. And it's all because the people and Paul respected and loved one another enough to begin their relationship on a solid foundation and to continue that relationship by naming and listening to each other's expectations. If assumptions are planned resentments, then clarity and honesty, spoken in love, are planned success. We need to set each other up for success if we are to live into the relationships and community God has planned for us. Naming and claiming our expectations for one another in every kind of relationship, from neighbor to friend to parent to child to teacher to grocery store worker, Clear boundaries, intentional behavior, and named expectations are how we can show the love of God to one another this week. And we learned it from, of all people, the impulsive and hot-headed Paul. But I have found when that I don't believe that God is speaking, it's not because God isn't speaking. It's because God is saying words that I don't want to hear. Often God is calling us into places that are frightening. 
because we are uncertain of what that future is. We know how to do this future. Okay. I was going to say, well, but I think for most of us, the truth is okay. We're making it day to day. We know how to make this work. And so when God is calling us into something different, into something new, into a vision of a future, it's a little scary because we are uncertain of who we will be and where we will go. And so it is not that God isn't speaking. It's that we are not listening. Not really listening. Not Peter on the rooftop listening. Not Cornelius in the nighttime listening. We are not truly open to the voice of God. We are not ready to hear the voice of God, to see the vision which descends from heaven for us, for our future. We don't want to hear it. That future makes us uncomfortable. Or it's the opposite direction of where we thought we wanted to go. Or it's an unwanted future because it brings pain and loss. But that doesn't mean God isn't speaking into that future. Period. We simply have to acknowledge that we are in between. We are really good at pretending things are the way they used to be. It takes us a long time to realize that we have changed, that our life has changed, that the world has changed beyond what we are able to handle in the way that we used to, with the skills that we have already in our pocket. We are like the proverbial ostrich, with our heads in the sand of what we know. But the truth is, most of us are in some form of a liminal space all of the time. Whether big moments or small moments, we are in between. The past that was and the future that will be. We can pretend it isn't happening. We can ignore the future that God has planned for us, or at least drag our feet kicking and screaming into it. But in my experience, if God has a vision for you and a plan for you and a future for you, it's going to happen. God didn't ask whether you were going to be happy about it. So we need to find ourselves in this liminal place to recognize that we are in a thin place between the world and God, between earth and heaven, that if we let ourselves, we will find ourselves on the rooftop, gazing into the night sky, 
open for a word from God. God is speaking. We just have to be brave enough to hear it.